Welcome to Trevecca Community Church's Sermon Podcast Series. Each week we'll be streaming our sermon from within the sanctuary just for you. room this morning. I am so blessed. Uh, Pastor Tim, I've actually never seen a Star Wars movie all the way through. I've never seen any of those trilogies, but I have read Ezekiel 10, and uh, I'm about to read it again. It's an amazing passage of scripture, and I am thankful, Pastor Shauna, Tim, for this series on Can These Bones Live? We've been through a lot in this church over the last several years. I think we need to acknowledge that sometimes. But this room is filled today with reminders that God is with us and these bones will live and our greatest days are still ahead of us. I fully believe that. If I had to live my life thinking that my best days were behind me, I would be, of all men, most miserable. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 10. Then I looked, and above the dome that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in form resembling a throne. He said to the man clothed in linen, Go within the wheelwork underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. He went in as I looked on. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. The house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When he commanded the man clothed in linen... Take fire from within the wheel work from among the cherubim. He went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, took some of it, and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. I looked, and there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like gleaming barrel. And as for their appearance, the four looked alike, something like a wheel within a wheel. When they moved, they moved in any of the four directions without veering as they moved, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without veering as they moved. Their entire body, their rims, their spokes, their wings, and the wheels, the wheels of the four of them, were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the wheel work. Each one had four faces. The first face was that of the cherub. The second face was that of a human being. The third, that of a lion. And the fourth, that of an eagle. The cherubim rose up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the river Chabar. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved beside them. 
And when the cherubim lifted their wings to rise up from the earth, the wheels at their side did not veer. When they stopped, the others stopped. And when they rose up, the others rose up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stopped above the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight as they went out with the wheels beside them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the river Chavar, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, each had four wings, and underneath their wings something like human hands. as what their faces were like. They were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Chabar. And each one moves straight ahead. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Michael. And uh, thank you, congregation. I wasn't sure, you know, we usually say thanks be to God. I really thought after that passage you would just go, what? Um, last week I made a big mistake. I jumped the gun. I wasn't sure who was supposed to be reading scripture. It was Michael. And so not knowing that he was coming, I thought, someone's got to read the scripture. And so I just said to Shauna, I'm going to do this. And I grabbed the microphone. And let's just say that, uh, Michael, we've given you plus this morning. Thanks for taking that passage on, because that was a long, confusing passage of scripture. And if you're just joining us this week, we've been walking through the book of Ezekiel on our way up to Easter Sunday. The book of Ezekiel, this wild, visionary text, this prophetic work of these bombastic images that might make us scratch our heads just a little bit, that might confuse us a little bit about what it is that we're seeing, but really at the heart of this, a text that is being spoken to a group of people who have had everything that they've known and loved stripped away from them. Here's the basic situation behind the book of Ezekiel. These are people who are hearing this book, who had memories of what life was like when things were really good, when God was with the people and they were dwelling with God and there was a closeness that gave a sense of flourishing to everything that was their life. Because of their closeness to God, they were able to be who they were called to be. It was a beating heart in the body of Israel because they were close to God and God was close with them, but now all of that has been pulled away. And these are people living in, in a season of incredible disorientation. They don't even know where the political lines are going to fall because one year to the next, they could be governed by one group or another. It's the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They're not even sure who they're going to have to pay their taxes to at some point. And so now you've got this group of people who are being pulled away from their homeland. They're being exiled. They're being taken away, in this case, to Babylon. And they're not sure if they're ever going to be able to recover the glory that they once had. Everything felt like it was falling apart around them. And so there's this live question that's underneath the entirety of the book of Ezekiel, which is something like this. Will the former glory that we had ever be restored? 
will the things that we had, the closeness to God that gave us our life, ever be redeemed again? Will the glory ever return? Or can these dead bones live again? And so now we come to chapter 10 where Ezekiel sees this incredible vision of the glory of God that is poised to leave the temple. Michael, thank you for such a beautiful reading of this text. But even the most beautiful reading of a text like this may not get us into the height of the tension where this falls in this text. Because for nine chapters, we've got this question swirling in the background. Will the former things be restored to us even though we're living in exile, even though everything is falling apart around us, even though the things that we treasured most deeply about who we were as a nation, as the people of God, have been stripped away from us, can this be restored to us even though it's been pulled away? And chapter 10 comes and falls at a time where the people begin to see this vision of the glory of God in the temple that looks like it's on its way out. And so if I could invite you into the tension of this chapter, I want you to imagine a group of people who are sitting on the edge of their chairs and their pulse begins to quicken. Their palms begin to sweat just a little bit. They might reach over and grab the hand of the person next to them because everything that was their hope in this season of exile looks like it's about to disappear in front of their eyes. It's almost as if the book of Ezekiel is written to this group of people, this kind of vision from a long distance away that said, maybe this book will give us some hope that we can claw our way out of this exile and get back to all the stuff that we lost and be the people who we are supposed to be yet again to move back into our houses and to have that sense of flourishing be established in our presence again. And now what we see in chapter 10 is this heart-pounding reality that the glory of God is about to leave the temple. And we don't know what to do with that. It's as if these exiles are standing there and the one hope that they had is about to exit the building. I don't know how else to get at this. I don't know how to live into that sense of tension that this text would have given to these people except to maybe link it to whatever it is that we can understand of the conflict that's going on in Ukraine. I've got a friend uh, who's been a friend for 20 years since my days in college. She's a Nazarene pastor and she's been living in Kyiv for the last 20 years or so. She's an American who moved and has married a Ukrainian. He's also a Nazarene pastor and they've been serving faithfully in Ukraine for a number of years. And it's been heartbreaking to watch the social media feed as she's able to kind of cobble together some posts in the midst of this incredible season of disorientation. I've been struck time and time and time again over all of the disorientation that she and her family have had to live through alongside the rest of the country. At first, it was just moving down into the subway system. They're in the city that they've known so well. To leave their house because it was too dangerous among all the bombs and the shells that were falling, and so they had to move underground and to maybe cobble together a a couple of, of, of hours of sleep when they could find a place, a quiet corner of the subway station uh, that they're living in as a makeshift bomb shelter and to find a couple of hours of peace there. And then came the heartbreaking news that they finally had to make the decision to leave the city. It just wasn't going to be safe enough anymore. And so in a little bit of a break from the violence, they were able to come up out of the subway systems and go back to their house. And just in the number of minutes that they had there before the next shell was going to fall, make 
decisions about what they were going to take with them, knowing this is probably the last time they're ever going to come back to this house. What do you grab? What do you do? How do you put your arms around the things that matter to you most, knowing that you may not ever get to come back to this place again? And then to see the post just a few weeks later, as they were making their way out of the city, not knowing where their next stop was going to be, not knowing where their next meal was going to be, not knowing if they were ever going to get to come back to this place again. And to see her write the words that have been haunting me since I read them, I never expected to be a refugee. Everything had been stripped away. There was this radical sense of disorientation. And with that radical sense of disorientation, I think comes this legitimate question. Where is God in all of this? This underlying question of, is God in this at all? Or even the more haunting question that I think is fair to ask when you're living through this kind of exile and disorientation, has God just abandoned us? Are we ever going to get back to the glory that we knew? And if we can live in that kind of sense of disorientation and tension, I think it gives us a little bit of a shot at understanding the anguish and trauma that's there in the original reading of Ezekiel 10. People wondering, am I ever going to get back to the house that I loved? Am I ever going to get back to the former glory of who we were as God's people? And in the recesses of our minds saying, has God even remembered us in this exile? Has God even heard our names and heard our cries? And then they come to chapter 10, and it looks as if the glory of God might leave the temple. And I don't want us to miss the power of this, that if the glory of God goes, that was the last shot that we had. That was our beating heart of who we were as God's people, that God was with us, and that was establishing the peace that we had once upon a time. But if the glory of God goes, that's it for us. Now I'm just abandoned here in exile, and I have nowhere left to go. What becomes of me? What becomes of my family? Who are we anymore as God's people? If the glory of God leaves the temple, I don't know what to do with that kind of trauma. And so I think that if we read Ezekiel 10, the way that they read it there, there is this heart-stopping reality that brings us to the edge of our chairs, that opens our eyes, makes our hearts begin to pound. Is God really going to leave the temple? Is the glory really going to leave? And we're left there at the end of chapter 10. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel shifts the scene before we actually get an answer to whether or not the glory of God is going to leave the temple or not. When we move from chapter 10 to chapter 11, it's this kind of unanswered question. It kind of leaves us with this cliffhanger. And I don't know why Ezekiel shifts the scene as quickly as he does right there. Maybe it's just what happens when you're trying to think clearly in the midst of all the trauma that you've experienced and being displaced from your house and trying to narrate this great vision that you've had of what God might be doing in the midst of this kind of disorientation. But it, at least it gives us this little bit of a pause an interruption, to maybe ponder questions like these. How has it come to this? What should we do in the middle of this disorientation? And in the middle of that pause, I don't know about you, but I think I feel this sense of desperation that begins to bubble up. And that, my friends, I think is most of the problem. 
See, what I think you have here is a group of people who are so desperate to keep the glory of God in the temple that they would do whatever it takes to make sure that the glory of God doesn't leave the temple. And that might be exactly the problem. Last week, I had the opportunity um, to sit with a couple of friends of mine. These have been longtime friends who I love deeply. They're both retired now. They're graduates of Treveca, and they are deeply committed to the church. Uh, Every chance I have to get, I love to go and sit with them and go on kind of day outings with them. And a lot of times, out of their sense of love for the church that they have given their lives to, they have all kinds of questions. They want to know what the latest and greatest is, especially from Treveca. What's going on at the university? And so I give them updates on the building projects that we're completing and all the enrollment goals we've been hitting and all the good stuff that's been taking place there. But then there's usually a time in the conversation that goes something like this. And it hit me on this last time that we were together as well. When one of my friends looked across the table at me and he said, well, tell me, Tim, what about the students? Do we have any reason to hope? And I got the sense very deeply that here are people who love the church, but they are living through a season of disorientation. That they're watching in some ways a church grapple with such disorienting cultural realities right now that they just want to know, are the students that are coming to the university now, the students that you are working to prepare, are they going to be our hope for the future? Is God giving the church a future, or has the glory started to leave the temple? They're starting to watch a generation of young adults grapple with whether or not the church is going to be the place so that they can make a home, or they can actually fulfill the vocation that God has given to them. And there is a deep sense in which there's a question of, is the glory about to leave the temple that I have given my life serving? It's a question that I think is powerful because over the last 10 years, I keep bumping into that reality more and more and more and more. A few weeks ago, Shauna was preaching and made reference to a book that we wrote a couple of years back, 10 years ago now, actually. It was given birth when we were sitting around our dining room table with a group of friends. They were recent seminary grads, and we were wrestling together on whether or not the church was going to be the place for us to serve. Several of my friends had made the decision that we were going to lean into the church and we were going to give everything we had and we were going to make that our place of service. And others were saying, I just don't know if I can do this or not. And so we started to listen to the stories and we started to seek out other stories and listen to the stories of those who have decided they were going to lean in hard. And then we started to listen to the stories of those who said, I don't think this is going to be the place for me. And we tried to connect all the dots and the stories that we were hearing and kind of offer that to the church in this book as maybe this kind of vision of hope, of one of the ways the church might be faithful and to chart a path into the future. As we started to go around to the different conferences and church gatherings where we were talking about the themes of that book, one of the questions that kept bubbling up over and over and over again is a generation of people who would come to hear us talk and say, is there any hope for the church? Is there any future for the church? Because it seems to me like the glory might be leaving the temple. And that's what I think that I saw at lunch that day. This kind of anguished, loving, deep question. Is God giving us a future? I think it was a really good question. It's a question of love, mainly from those who have given their lives in service to the church. 
And so I thought about it a moment, and I think maybe Ezekiel was working on me just a little bit in the background there, because it didn't take me very long to give my friend a response. I'll tell you what I'm seeing. Without a doubt, the Spirit is giving the church a vibrant future. Without a doubt. God is being faithful to give the church a future that will make the church a vibrant reality. The question is, will we be willing to receive the future that the Spirit is giving to us. And I think that I see students on a daily basis who are wide open to the movement of the Spirit, the future that God is giving, and saying, I'm willing to go wherever it is that the Spirit is calling me to go, but I don't know if the church is willing to come with me in this. And here we are with that sense of anguish. Will the lights go out in this church? Because I think God's always giving us a future. The question is whether or not we're willing to live into it or not. See, part of what I've been seeing over these last few years is this kind of edge of your seat posture from so many in the church as they're looking around and wondering if our best days are behind us. So Michael, thank you. Our best days are still in front of us. If the future that the Spirit is giving to us is something that we are willing to embrace and live into together. There's a sense in which we're looking around these temples that have been so full of God's glory and blessing, and we're remembering all of the good times where we have met the God of holiness who has done something with lives that we have offered up and brought us into a place of being a vibrant, living people. And now we're asking questions like, is the glory going to leave the place that I've loved so well? And it feels like the presence of God is poised to exit. And sometimes that can lead people to try everything they can to keep the glory of God in the temple. But here, friends, I think is the hard part of this, the Lent part, (laughs) that we need to give some honest attention to today. The more desperate we get to keep the glory in the temple, the more prone we are to acts of desperation. But desperate acts often focus on keeping the lid on the temple rather than joining the God who's on the move. So now, I hope you don't misunderstand me on this. This isn't whether or not we're just trying to put God in a box, and this really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we are in a building or not. Because I think that the beauty of the temple was and has always been that it's the place where we could be close to God, the holy God of the universe, where we could live in a sense of intimacy with the God whose spirit causes our heart to beat with abundant life. But the question now is whether we crave that sense of intimacy enough to move with the God who might be poised to leave the temple. And when God is on the move, is intimacy with God our first desire? When God is on the move, intimacy with God, or the way we tend to describe it around places like this, holiness, calls for us to move to wherever God is moving. So is God giving the church a vital future? I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the Spirit is giving us a vibrant and vital future. The question in my mind is whether we'll be willing to join God on the move. And my honest concern for the church is that the impulse that tempts the church at large is to do whatever we can to make sure that God's glory doesn't leave the temple. And all the while, we miss the incredible and vibrant life of holiness 
of living in true intimacy with God. Friends, some of you have been living around this place for a really long time, and you just kind of get this. Because this has been the story of Trevecca Community Church and the larger group we belong to called the Church of the Nazarene. Some of you are just finding your way into this this body. And maybe you don't know the story that I'm about to tell, so if you want to know more about the story that I'm about to outline, I'd invite you to come back next week. We have TCC 101. We're going to tell a little bit more of this story. But one of my favorite things about this group, this church that we belong to, is that this has always been our story, that we were a part of a people from a long time ago who were never going to be satisfied with anything less than intimacy with the God who was on the move. There were people who were coming out of other kinds of movements that were very concerned with whether or not the glory of God was going to leave their temple, and there was a, an exerted effort in some ways to put a lid on the temple to make sure that the glory of God never left. But there were some early people who said, we're not going to settle for that. We're not going to be satisfied with that. We have got to go wherever this God is moving. And so out they went out of the temples, out of the places where God had met them previously, and they begin to get caught up wherever it is that the Spirit might be moving, toward the margins of society where the poor and the outcasts were living, where the holiness of God was not afraid to go, and the church of the Nazarene began to find its roots right there. They weren't afraid. They weren't going to be satisfied with anything less than that. And so ultimately, I think that there is a way that we could read Ezekiel 10. There's, there's basically two ways I think we can read Ezekiel 10. One of them is to look at the movement of God that looks like it's about to leave the temple and to get really nervous and fearful about that. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We need to start some programs. We need to do everything we can to get really desperate to make sure that we don't lose the glory of God from the temple. That's one way that we could read Ezekiel 10. The other way, I think, is to lean in and read it like the exiles did. Because if you noticed in the reading of Ezekiel 10, the glory of God begins to move up from the temple. And it's poised to leave on the east side of the building. And where is it that the exiles have been carried away to? But to the east, the far side. And so you can read Ezekiel 10 and get really nervous. Oh my goodness, is the glory of God going to leave? Is the church that I've given my life to going to, in some sense, feel the anxiety and tension of the God that was leaving that? Are we ever going to get back to the glory that we once knew so well? Or we can read it like the exiles who are saying, wait a minute, this is a God who even though we are far from the glory of the temple, is not going to be stopped by the temple, but is the God who is on the move to us. The God who will not stop until the people of God have been carried into intimacy with God, God, which has always been the glory of the temple to begin with. What I think that meant is that if we are going to live in the glory of God, we are going to be the people who are not going to settle for anything less than intimacy with God. When Ezekiel comes to the end of chapter 11, he sees, yes, that the glory of God eventually does depart the temple. It leaves the temple. And it moves east across the city walls of Jerusalem. And there's a a valley there. Uh, This kind of long, expansive valley 
that many of you have probably seen. Several of you have probably stood on the mountaintop that is at the crest of the valley that kind of slopes down and then gives you this incredible view of the eastern side of Jerusalem. It's the presence of God that stops just on the top of that hill after it's left the temple. And it's over that mountaintop where there were gardens that were planted there. As a matter of fact, on the top of that mountain, there's this grove of olive trees. It's been there for thousands of years where the glory of God rests after it leaves the temple. That's the same grove of olive trees that we've come to know as the Mount of Olives. It's where Jesus was standing and kneeling and praying and pouring himself out. And he prays this prayer on the Mount of Olives that I don't think we can ignore, especially as we're walking together through this season of Lent. It's the very place where Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. Now, what's going on there? I can't get away from this reality that part of what I think is being fulfilled there is that the glory of God that left the temple and moved east toward the exiles is being restored when the Son of God carves out a place of intimacy with the Father and says, wherever it is that you are going, I'm going there with you. And even though the glory might leave the temple, it has always been this deep sense of intimacy with the Father that has been the glory of the people of God to begin with. And the intimacy that Jesus carves out with the Father and opens to the people of God to stand in is the very glory of God. And so it is not that the, the glory of God is going to be restored to Jerusalem because Jesus walks down and enthrones himself in the temple. No, the glory of God is restored to Jerusalem because Jesus is carried down in shackles and is enthroned on a cross. I can't get away from the reality that the eastern side of Jerusalem where the glory of God began to leave is the very place where Jesus and his disciples would have watched the Roman soldiers leave and the torchlight that they were carrying illuminates their path as they come to arrest Jesus and to take him to his crucifixion. And I also can't help but think about the realities of Jesus who says intimacy with the Father is the glory of God. It's never been about the building itself. and It's nothing that we have to worry about losing because this God is the one who is always on the move. And so here I think is the challenge of Lent to us. That we devote this season to walking the way of Jesus toward the cross. In many ways, that includes walking the way of laying down any desperate attempts to force the glory to stay in the temple. Walking the way of Jesus is having the glory of God restored to us because intimacy with God is all that it's after, no matter where the God of glory is going to take us. And that, to me, friends, comes to me as incredibly good news. It's the staggeringly good news that our lives don't need to be devoted to trying to keep the glory in the temple at any expense. In fact, desperate attempts to keep the glory in the temple seem to be the exact thing that move us further and further from intimacy with God. But the profoundly good news here is that stepping into the way of Jesus is stepping into intimacy with God. It's the glory restored. 
Not my will, but yours. I'm willing to be that intimate. And I will go wherever you call me to go. And I'm willing to lay down any desperate attempts that I have to restore the glory and to claw my way back to the temple because you are here with me and I will walk with you. That's why I desperately need the meal week after week after week that we are about to receive. Why? Because, friends, I am tempted all the time to claw my way back to the glory to develop the program, to develop the strategy, to make sure that we are going to be strong and smart enough to restore the glory of God and to capture it in the temple. But can I give you some really good news this morning? The future, the vibrant future that God is giving the church is intimacy with God through the way of Jesus Christ. And there's temptations on every side for us to make it about other things. Can I give you the truth of the gospel this morning? It is Jesus who is the glory of God. And if we have any shot at being the people who are so deeply devoted to the glory of God, I think it comes through the meal that we are about to receive. Because Jesus took the bread and the cup and he said, this isn't me holding on to anything in a sense of white-knuckle desperation. This is about me pouring myself out. So go and do likewise. Oh, I think we have a future in front of us. A faithful vibrant, beautiful future that comes to us as we nourish ourselves at this table. The band is going to come and we're going to sing for a little while. The altars are open and friends, I want to invite you, if you want to spend a few moments in prayer, maybe in some sense opening your hand and saying, the church that I have loved and given my life to serve is one that I love deeply, and I want to be sure that the glory doesn't leave, but maybe this morning I'm coming to the realization that I need to start reading Ezekiel 10 a little bit like an exile, to crave intimacy with God above all other things so that the glory of God can be me in the way of Jesus, and I need some divine help in walking that pattern. Lent is a really good time to come and to find a place there. Or maybe it is that intimacy with God has been something that has been distant from you for a very long time and you just need to spend a few moments getting intimate with the God and saying, not my will but yours, I'm willing to go anywhere that you will take me because the glory of God's people will always be in our deep connection to this God who is on the move. To be moved and sent, empowered by the God who is with us. Who is with us. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to join us on campus next week, we have discipleship classes beginning at 9 a.m. followed by service at 10.30. That service will be streamed to Facebook Live. We hope to see you there.